Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On, a podcast that takes its cue from big picture, healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in Australia. I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome, Phil, and thanks so much for joining me and congratulations on the fabulous program of events for Urban Agriculture Month that you and the team from Royal Botanic Gardens have just held. It was just fantastic. Welcome. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having us, Anthea. Phil, what were, what were some of your favourite moments from the Urban Agriculture Month Royal Botanic Gardens events that you organised? I know for me, there were so many highlights, but I really, really enjoyed Sharon Windsor from Indigenous Talk, which was just inspiring, as was meeting the guys from Wildflower Social Enterprise. What were your highlights? Yeah, I think certainly having um, the guys from Wildflower present at the Calix Live event and the panel session with Sharon, I think there was a great conversation there. Uh, obviously, Clarence and, and Chris's contributions as well were, were very topical and, and uh, great to hear more about the program. Uh, Brendan's work, is, of course, with us was fantastic. Um, I think, yeah, that's definitely a highlight of the events, along with the uh, food foraging for a future climate with Diego, I think was probably the uh, the top sessions for the Urban Ag Month. But, um, yes, that the um, Calix Live event, talking about First Nations Food Enterprise, was certainly the pick. And um, seeing Auntie Carol attend and and the wildflower lads come along and, and ask questions and get involved was just fantastic. It was. It was, it was a, a really rich event. I'm speaking with Phil Pettit, who is the manager of the Royal Botanic Gardens Community Greening Program, a program that has run for 20 years and works in partnership with many NGOs, local and state government services to inspire and educate social housing residents in community gardening. Phil has over 20 years' experience in the horticulture sector and his bio describes him as part educator, part horticultural advisor, but principally as a community development worker and problem solver. I've known Phil for quite a few years <laughs> and have watched the community greening program really grow and flourish. One of many highlights of late has been recognition of the Master Gardener Volunteer and Leadership Program that Phil has been a real force behind. Another recent highlight was the inspiring presentation that Phil and his colleague Brendan Moore, who is the Aboriginal Community Greening Officer in his team, along with Peter Dorr, coordinator of the Youth Community Greening Program, uh, that they gave to the Urban Agriculture Forum that was held in April and part of Urban Agriculture Month. A standout keynote address at that forum was by Chris Blythe, who is the Director of the UK's Social Farms and Gardens uh, Network, and his talk was all about care farming and gardening in the UK. Phil, so much of what you and the Community Greening program and team do seems to really strongly resonate with the spirit of care farming and gardening. Uh, what you do is pitch toward empowering vulnerable communities to, and you provide a range of health training and other benefits and just generally help communities tackle adversity through the joy of gardening. It's just diverse and pretty fabulous. 
can, can you lead us in and tell us about what community greening is and what its driving rationale is and who supports the program? Yeah, I, I loved Chris's talk about, you know, being um, investing the people first and, and that model is, is what really care farming is about. And I think it does sort of speak to the, the type of community gardening that we do. And um, we are looking into community uh, or care farms um, as such as a way forward in, in some areas. So absolutely. So yes, um, <clears throat> community greening, is an outreach program inspired by some work in the US uh, in the 90s and still going now to date and um, by other botanic gardens and um, modelled on that and uh, built on a relationship with the Department of Housing or currently Department of Communities and Justice. So uh, we're predominantly funded by uh, Department of Communities and Justice. So we, we focus on our work on, on their um, participants or residents, so social housing and community housing. Uh, that, so community housing and public housing is called social housing and as, along with refugees and, and other, um, you know, underserved communities, I suppose. So we've also working in partnership with Aboriginal Housing Office as well. So our Master Gardener program, which you did mention, is a federally funded program currently with the Department of Social Services, um, looking to sort of break down barriers within communities and in, in encourage sort of pathways to further education, volunteering and potentially employment. Uh, we also have uh, corporate uh, support and um, currently that's um, for our youth program and uh, we also have fantastic in-kind support and sponsorship from Australian horticultural businesses within the industry. So there's loads of those on our website. And so we, um, in addition to the bio that you read out about me, um, I, I think someone said to me recently that could add into that uh, relationship builder because um, as Chris Blythe mentioned, it is people-centred um, and we don't achieve what we do, almost um, 900 gardens in youth and community across New South Wales without people and, and partnerships. So um, it's very much the success, the successful programs are very much sort of driven by one, a, a very much um, motivated and um, fantastic community member, and two, an equally um, motivated and um, passionate community service that's supporting them and us uh, when we're not present to ensure those projects continue um, and include other other activities, you know, like art and social programs as well. So it's a big part of what we do, a partnership model. So there's very much there's some formal ones, there's some informal ones, um, but you can think um, St Vincent de Paul, Mission Australia, local councils to a degree as well and and um, many of the community housing providers like Link Wentworth, St George Community Housing, uh, Evolve Community Housing are predominant in, in our Encompass, um, Pacific Link. There's a whole bunch of them, but they're very prominent in our day-to-day -day work. Yeah, fantastic. I was going to ask you um, to paint a bit of a picture of how many people your work touches and and where the communities you work with are, because many of them are in Sydney, but they're across the state, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. Can you give us a bit of a sense of the breadth and the diversity of the sort of locations and communities you work with? Our, our projects can be, you know, two raised garden beds in a common area of a seniors complex, or they could be 80 garden beds that we support. Um, and they could be one we've started, or they could just be ones that we've come across and that we support with advice or workshops and things like that. So there's a real um, range and varying degree of, of the the type of gardens that we support but they're not just produce gardens some are bush foods gardens some are just floral gardens in, in raised beds that are accessible some are more sort of social and therapeutic programs and, and art style kind of gar and garden related sort of programs and then others are, are quite 
bigger or, you know, we, we're sort of also trying to support others to start social enterprise as well that, that serve and, and add value to the projects that we do. So, yeah, they, they tend to sort of, um, you know, go from Coogee on the coast to, uh, you know, Broken Hill in the west and up towards Casino and Ganelabar, far, far inland to Angonia where we've supported, um, you know, community up there right down to Albury on the coast and Eden. Uh, so the full width and breadth of New South Wales, which is quite a bit of coverage. But obviously, as you mentioned, predominantly in sort of the outer suburbs of Sydney, the western suburbs, many of our community gardens are for residents of those social housing complexes only. So as a, you know, a social equity point, uh, they're not open to the general public because they are for the benefit of those residents. However, people could support and volunteer if they'd like to. So... Uh, yeah, we are kind of sometimes a little bit hidden in the laneways of Redfern or, you know, Mount Druid or somewhere. So not not necessarily always a, a prominent space, but uh, if you follow the team on social media, uh, we post a lot of stuff under the hashtag community greening. You can sort of see some of the types of work we do uh, and some of the schools that we work. So the schools program also covers New South Wales, but is only currently one person doing amazing things there, training teachers, but also supporting garden and habitat projects, food gardens, bushtucker gardens, doing some amazing work, uh, as you would have seen uh, in Peter's presentation, you know, engaging elders and uh, Aboriginal students in, in uh, culturally relevant learning in an outdoor space, which I think is a much more traditional way to to learn and, and speak culture and, and connect. So, yeah, doing doing amazing things there in that space, and um, yeah, that's obviously uh, I, I find that's a great and, and very growth area for for the program. I think we'll have you know more people doing that soon once we can just raise that profile further of that program. Yeah, and bush foods and 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 their role for habitat and for people in urban landscapes was a big theme of Urban Agriculture Month, wasn't it? Certainly in Sydney. Yeah, it was. And it's it's great, you know, as I say, great to see Auntie Carol there who also works for DET, you know, Department of Education Training. And and so it's, um, I think we were talking, weren't we, about designing a whole school with, um, you know, uh, Aboriginal co-design and, and, you know, culture and country first, I suppose, you know, which would be amazing with the team that we have uh, with Pete, Brendan and um, Uncle Ivan and, and Auntie Carol, you know, at the forefront of it, I think it would be just amazing to, to deliver something like that. Yeah, no, seriously exciting. I think in your presentation, or maybe it was on your website, just to give listeners a sense of the depth and breadth of the impact of where you work and so forth, I think I think you, you say in your presentation that you're aiming for 850 gardens by 2021 and to engage something like 150,000 participants in 2021. So that is huge. Yeah, so that's that's a, um, a, a goal that we're aiming to reach. So we're on pretty close to that um, already. So I think we're... I think that goal is actually for 2023. So I think we're actually a little bit ahead of that. So hence, hence why we might put 2020. Um, so we're really on target to kind of, you know, um, you know, get get those numbers, which is great. Uh, and we've done a recent survey and obviously some some research and evaluation around our project, which is starting to build evidence and some of those reports are underway. So I think one of the things, one of the key things is, as I mentioned, it's community first. So we work in that community development model where we empower people to, you know, build and, you know, 
own and design those gardens in, in any way they possibly can participate in that. And um, and then we support those gardens to, to manage and, and run and continue as best as we can, uh, you know, for as long as is required and, and that the community is interested in participating there. So, you know, there, there's gardens that we've been working with since inception in 2000. So, you know, and still supporting them to this day. And, you know, community gardens, they go through sort of stages of, of high participants and low participants. So we work with them through those ebbs and flows of productivity and, uh, you know, continue just to kind of nurture them through and, and see them grow. And not only in the garden, but in, in the community and people's lives have been really amazing. And it's just, you know, it is fantastic for the team to see people's confidence develop through gardening. So our logo and motto, it's people, plants and places. So, you know, it's very much about those three key things. And, um, you know, that's how we connect through through plants and, and support people uh, in, in places all over the place. So it's, um, and, and many have that connection to country and um and and if not a connection to country that that first nations people have they have that innate connection to nature um and and we all know about you know this biophilia and how you know um beautiful flowers and and beautiful scenery and nature makes us smile and and that's where we go to holiday so um it has this real sense of um empowerment to be able to grow our own food and, and i think that's something that we we support people to do where potentially they're in communities where there's um you know sometimes crime drug and alcohol uh, mental illness um or just um lack of physical ability within the community to be able to achieve some of these things so with a little bit of support and encouragement from us and, and some volunteers sometimes then we can we can you know achieve really amazing things and i think every group really kind of surprises me every time you know whether it be through teaching me something I didn't know or actually achieving eight cubic metres of soil moved in an hour and a half, it can just be mind-blowing. It's just incredible what, what's, what's possible. Yeah, no, incredible therapeutic and, and, and therapeutic benefits and pleasures. Um, you know, we all, there's a growing literature about forest bathing and the therapeutic benefits of being outdoors. Even something like 20 minutes is just can, 20 minutes immersion can do an incredible amount to reduce stress levels and anxiety. So, so so many dots you're joining. Given that you're doing so much and you've got a fairly small team, can you tell me about what an average day looks like for you, Brendan, Elizabeth? <laughs> I know recently you posted that you had you visited six gardens in one day. Yeah, so um, we've got, uh, you know, fairly recently we've got, uh, you know, additional people and hopefully uh, someone else is coming on soon, we'll see, with some new funding coming through. Um, but yes, yeah, so we've got Brendan, Elizabeth, Darren, and um, and Pete out on on the ground, and uh, and myself. And so, you know, they can sort of be attending maybe uh, one, maybe two, uh, anywhere up to sort of maybe four. I know I've done five sites in a day before now, um, where some are just you know drop ins and, and meetings and things like that. Um, but invariably, you don't sort of get away from a meeting or a site inspection in anywhere less than an hour sort of thing. So, And we do obviously try to kind of, you know, the team are spread out around Sydney and Greater Sydney. And so they do set a focus on areas near where they live to reduce some of that travel. Um, but sometimes our day could be, you know, hopping on a plane at 6am and flying down to Albury, spending the day there, building gardens and um, maybe doing some art and then maybe playing some, you know, sport with kids and then and then flying back the next day uh, or, that, or that evening even um, and getting home at eight o'clock at night. So they can be long days or it could be, you know, four or five days on the road out to Wilcannia um, traveling through 
Broken Hill, um, and that could either be a combination of driving or flying, depending on how we can get there, and some overnight accommodation in, in hotels for us to get all around these places. So, um, yeah, it's very much into urban and, and regional, and um, yeah, it's a you know can be hard on the on the family life getting being away a little bit every so often, but we try to sort of spread that around the team a bit, try to do where we can sort of fly and fly out if that's practical or possible and, and you know, financially sort of um, efficient, that that's what we do. And, and in many cases it can be, but for some of the further further afield um, centres um, and those without regular air, air um, travel, it, it's much easier to drive and, and link a few together. So, yeah. And um, you, you've described sort of the variety of types of gardens and, and different sizes and scales and uh timeframes even. Um, there was a great episode recently or a segment recently on Gardening Australia that featured uh, Thoroughwell Aboriginal Corporation in Western Sydney that Clarence and Brendan, and I think you were on it too. Can, can you tell us a little, I mean, that's a really lovely example of a project that has just gone from strength to strength. Can you just briefly describe that garden and who's involved? Yeah, so it's it's a fantastic project and similar to several, you know, we've, we've supported a number of AMSs and, and those projects that help um, elders, but um yeah, it started, I think it started maybe a year or so before I came on board and I know uh, Yoland, one of the uh, original community greening team, was um, was was key in getting that happening uh, along with, yeah, down, down there the, the, from health promotion. Um, so, yeah, it was, um, it's sort of a New South Wales health promotion and the thorough AMS were key to sort of getting it started. Started with a couple of garden beds on the ground and slowly we got water tanks and and um, and raise beds through grants and through program funds that we um, invested into it, and uh, pretty much that whole time, one of the elders down there, Chris Dewa, has been who was featured in the segment very heavily, and rightly so, has been the driving force behind that garden. And so vegetables, lettuce, cucumbers, tomatoes, and things are grown. And and um, there's a healthy communities coordinator now, Sophia, who who helps cook that up and um, and teaching participants about healthy eating and cooking. And cooking for families and so they provide um anything they cook up they provide as meals emergency meals to to families um needing support and they've also now got this uh, food box program as well that the the community group there um all volunteer and pitch in and help out with so they have a number of sort of um uh, staff there that are also involved in managing the garden and and several volunteers and and what have you so yeah it's it's a really great as you say, really great site. There's also um, quite a few citrus and bush foods and some really great sort of cultural spaces there with a, a bit of a serpent garden and, um, and and the like. So a lot of native plants feature heavily and, um, and that's hoping to be expanded as, as you know, as we progress. But uh, if you see that segment on Gardening Australia, you'll see now that it's pretty much all raised garden beds and that's all been sort of bit by bit through our program through grants that the the team have got there at the AMS and the and the Aboriginal Corporation and so working together with them to to create that we also had um Arnie Kay and Artie Marge come to the tomato festival the year before last obviously we didn't have it with uh, we had a virtual one with COVID and they picked up a bit of a storm there with Costa in the uh, community greening cooking and learning hub so that was fantastic to see uh the two two aunties there, supported by Sophia, um, you know, sh- chefing it up with a, uh, you know, with head mics on and everything, you know, 
speaking through the the bush tomato that they were using and the different ingredients and uh you know costa kind of interviewing and supporting them along the way and and handing their dishes out once they were finished and 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 hosting the sort of the the whole session was really great team effort there and, and really good to see and something we'd like to kind of continue to do that a bit more uh with them as well so it was really great great little event yeah that's no, a it's a really uh it's a big a big garden and a really integrated hooked up series of programs it's just all about the diverse benefits that your program is is seeding along it was interesting um chris blythe spoke about you know the range of different benefits therapeutic benefits food other social inclusion self-worth all those sorts of things and he spoke about a survey that he'd done of some of his network where people sort of rated growing food sort of in the middle about of the various benefits uh that they perceived from these projects but he also said that during covid the growing of food has become more and more valued and that there were there were more and more connections between food relief groups and community growers. Is that something you've sort of observed, or do you think do you think growing food rates really highly with your participants, or is it sort of in the general mix of benefits? What's what's your sort of quick take on that? With us, with some of the survey work that we've done and, and evaluation with Western Sydney University, we found that um, you know predominantly people wanted to change perception in their community about you know, their community, and they wanted to uh, learn about gardening. And that was the sort of the two key driving factors. Produce and cultural sort of food connection comes in a little bit sort of third or fourth place. I think through COVID that, that might have been elevated a little bit, although we didn't really survey to find that sort of detail. We were a horticultural outreach education program, and we never really had food security on the program. But it's certainly something that I've been quite strong about. And, and I know that it for many, it is is very much a key reason to being involved, and all their food that they live off comes from the garden in many cases. So it is a very strong motivator for for several to, to but particularly with people born overseas and uh, non English speaking refugees and the like, that cannot that cultural connection um, where foods are quite you know expensive or, or potentially just trendy. Food component is really important. And, and some groups, you know, may not even eat healthy food. They grow the food to give to others. And it's very much about that volunteering. And I think being empowered to grow your own food is one, uh, obviously, a very strong feeling of empowerment and security. But um, being able to give something, and I think this, this sort of works with our community nurseries that we support as well. So being able to give plants to others when you don't necessarily have a lot of money to be able to spare or to be able to, you know, volunteer and help people or pay for things for people. But if you can provide them with a gift of food or basil and what have you, it's a really nice thing to be able to do um, and to support people that are really sort of doing it tough. When, when many of our, our residents and participants um, are, are doing quite well and, and they just love to share and, and care and look after others. So I think that's a, a real strong factor. But Obviously, food security, I found, is very important with many of our groups and, and uh, to be able to grow traditional foods that can be overpriced or, or trendy um, and, and, and expensive for people to purchase, that's a very, very uh, important factor for our culturally diverse communities, I think. We certainly see that all the time and in some gardens, some, some plot holders um, or garden groups derive nearly all of their food from, from the community garden. So that's, you know, that shows... And highlights how important that food is and so it's really got me into the right to food coalition and and been working very closely with that that group to 
to work around advocacy and food security and and how and then just to raise that point of how community gardens can be part of the solution to food insecurity. Do you see connections between food relief groups and community gardens and growers? Absolutely. Nearly all of our gardeners, you know, many of them are involved in um, volunteering, you know, and as I say, they, they want to care for others that they've either been through some some tough times um, or, or they've, they've witnessed others go through those tough times and they're very much the volunteer type that want to be able to help and, and volunteer in those food relief um, charities, but also sometimes they, they are the recipients and benefiters of those um, services. Food pantries and food reliefs are, are certainly um, quite prevalent in the areas where we're working and often work in conjunction with the food gardens too. So, yeah, it's, not, yeah. it's nice to see the, the sharing of volunteers between those projects. And I think, you know, really most community pantries and community food um, should have or be associated with a food gar- growing garden, I feel. Are they? Are, are any? Some are, but, yeah, there's not, there's not a huge amount. I think they should be more closely related because I think, you know, we all know that accessing fresh produce from the garden is much more efficient than, you know, bundling up um, material. And I think there is a fair amount of, you know, kickback in food charity where where the food's not of the quality that people feel is is suitable for, the, you know, consumption or for them. So um, there is a little bit of that. I know a lot of the charities do a lot of work to try and prevent that. But from time to time, you know, people do receive things that they don't think uh, dignify them taking or accepting. So, I mean, there's twofold there. There's composting processes that can help to reduce, you know, uh, landfill and wastage um, and, and, you know, conserve those nutrients back in the ground to, to be able to grow more food from that. So, um, but in addition to be able to supplement long long storage foods, um, packaged foods with fresh foods straight from the garden where there's much less waste. Yeah. And that was something that Chris Blythe said in the, in the UK, there had previously been quite a lot of pushback from food relief groups from receiving community-grown foods. But during COVID, they really forged new and stronger relationships and those connections were being made, which um, sort of leads into a bit of a chat about COVID. As you say, volunteering during COVID was difficult and a lot of food relief um, organisations, and I know the Right to Food Coalition have done some reports about the impacts of COVID on food relief and loss of volunteers was challenging for a period there. Can you tell us about um, what sort of challenges did your team face during COVID? Did you have to go online and do everything virtually or how did you go about staying in touch with your communities? Yeah, look, it certainly sort of um, sped up some sort of technical technological advances there, I think, with communities because obviously along with food security, you know, um, equitable access to technology is not, not the, uh, the greatest thing for a lot of the communities that we work with. So, um, but we did see we had an existing Facebook group and we did see that go from some 150 members to like I think it's close to 500 now, um, which is amazing. And most of, you know, sort of doubled in, within a month of the first month of lockdown. And, and so we did a lot of um, Facebook Live because we did see that as being quite accessible for people, one of the sort of more accessible forms of technology. A lot of older people and, and you know, people seem to be kind of on on. Facebook so that that's worked really well and it's also been a way for us to share other short videos and clips and things and some of our providers have have got us on to a few um, zoom sessions and, and they've been very successful as well but for smaller groups I feel so just due to that um, accessibility and then we've also done you know we've tried to continue some of our programs via zoom where we've had organizations support us and so we've had people say oh 
I, you know, I'd heard all about this Zoom thing. I've never been on one. This has been fantastic. So they've experienced, a, you know, a Zoom conference call um, in the, for the first time ever sort of thing just through being involved in our programs so we we were very lucky in that the team and our management and um and and funders really supported us to to remain on the road as much as we could even during lockdown where we were supporting in very essential ways whether we were masked up or you know to drop off seedlings and uh, we even had groups growing seedlings for others and and sharing them between Mm. the groups so we had a bit of a community of growers going during COVID and we set them some challenges to um, as well, some virtual challenges to sort of send us in what they've been doing in the garden while they've been in lockdown. So sort of um, and some prizes and things along with that. And we created a whole website webpage around that. And then we had another challenge around gardening for good health. Tell us about you know your experience with gardening for good health. So we filmed videos and we did quotes for those that didn't want to be on videos and just put them onto slides and put them up on our website as well. So we had a number of people participate in that and speak about the benefit of COVID and how getting down to the community garden was their their you know little silent space, their tranquil space during what was a pretty chaotic and uncertain time. So yeah, it certainly played a big role there. And I think that yeah, people were just sort of not not feeling very connected. So to be able to connect through social media or through those challenges, uh, we had some groups do artworks um so we sort of had a very broad just garden related challenge Mm. and um it was it was really engaging and we increased our um frequency of newsletters online and printed um during that time as well just to kind of keep people connected uh to the program and to what was going on we still see probably a little bit of a lower number in in some of the bigger gatherings yeah it's sort of coming back a bit now and People are getting back out and back into the garden. Some groups where their garden was associated with a community centre were were physically locked out, and and we were working with many of the authorities to say this is you know part of essential service like a, a shopping centre to access food. Many of the community gardens, not only for the food but also that mental health um, need where people don't have a, a green space to go to was very important. So we did try to kind of advocate on their behalf but there were still some places that were just just closed due to due to the um the lockdowns that was pretty tough and we helped them get back get started again once they were open up so with a bit of a working day yeah yeah i know naomi from community gardens australia that they, they, they uh, lobbied hard for community gardens to be kept open during lockdown in melbourne as well yeah so we, we very much sort of got onto their their statement and the city of sydney were very powerful around that as well and working with a sort of a, a very um, solid message and solidarity to say to other smaller organisations, no, this is really important and essential. You know, people need to access these spaces and they can still adhere to distancing and hygiene and what have you. So, yeah. No, well done, you. So a lot of what you do is about building resilience and, and helping people to take practical action to, you know, feel good about themselves, to connect with friends and family, to, to get outdoors, to experience, you know, therapeutic benefits and just the pleasure of gardening whether it's food or or ornamental or other but one of the things i know all of your team have been really really concerned about is to to help communities recovering from the bushfires would you like to talk about that at all yep i think one of the one of the seedling groups i remember because you're a big social media person i remember seeing a fantastic delivery of i think it was five thousand seedlings from the diggers club to eden or something like that at one stage mid last year and I, I think you guys have been doing quite a bit in Cabago too haven't you yeah that's right look I mean um we, we were fortunate just to 
um, have made contact with the Eden um, social housing community in Eden and just in September 2019, just before the fires. And so uh, we we started a Master Gardener course down there and that was the role of that course was to build community together and also to build this community garden project as part of their place, place plan team down there. Um, project that been identified by community. So they they had to evacuate twice from there and so we're very much impacted by smoke and fires and we did have some of our groups growing seedlings up in Sydney to go down to them and more recently we've just received some funding to um, support that region and some other regions in the south there um, to do more social and therapeutic horticulture programs and, and start more gardens and run more run more courses and training for schools, preschools and community in that region. So that's something we're really looking forward to. And we certainly see, um, you know, with not just um, the restrictions on food um, and, and the panic buying that was happening within the fires and COVID, but also food security with the fires, there was um, road blockages and transportation issues. And, and so there wasn't enough food to sort of get around. So I think Community gardens can play a really strong role for any future climatic disasters that occur um, and really kind of contribute to that food security issue in those areas. In those bushfire areas, were, were, quite a, were people quite concerned or did you get involved with sort of small local nurseries to help, you know, build up stocks of local plants for, for recovery or was that a bit down the track? Yeah, look, that's that's sort of the work that we're looking at doing a little bit further down the track, I think. But a lot of our local community nurseries and community groups were really happy to take, you know, a couple of trays of, of seedling raising mix and some packets of seed and, and and really to grow them on for our our programs in those in those fire affected areas. And we we also had some schools um, volunteer to to grow on plants and, and and things for those areas as well yeah so we, we got a grant for the um from the um australian institute um of horticulture and their international year of plant health um the hort innovation program with the hort innovation program they they were very keen to support fire affected regions and so um we we built a, a bush tucker garden down there at cabago with the school and that was very you know, cathartic and very therapeutic for the the students and, and the community down there to be involved in that that greening process. Uh, and just recently, last week, uh, one of our team, Peter, took down a wall of my pine from our scientific collection to donate to to sort of as a bit of a, a demonstration of the resilience of that community that um, they survived the fires, as did the uh, wall of my pines survived them for you know for thousands and thousands of years mm. in one of my national parks. So it was very symbolic. Um, you know, planting to of the resilience of that region. So, yeah, very much looking forward to getting down there. And I think plants can can provide certainly a sense of a way forward for many people to you know get outdoors and, and connect with others and and share their experiences in in that sort of non confrontational and side by side manner that social and therapeutic horticulture programs can do. That's fantastic, Phil. That's that's such a beautiful story. And I, I think I saw on social media you and you and Peter heading out to uh, collect. Those Wallamai pines that you were described as uh, kids in a candy store <laughs> in the nursery. <laughs> yeah, well, they're they're all um, ex ex research collections, so they've all been chopped and hacked around a bit. So they're kind of pretty gnarly, and you know, like I, I guess <laughs> if you're a bit of a bonsai fan, you would be even even more entranced by the the uh, selection of, of plants that you could have, and and they're very <laughs> they had a very sort of um, artistic you know structure. They're very 
quite unique. Each one was very unique in the way its habit had grown. So that's really interesting that, as you just said, that a Master Gardener program down at Eden was sort of a bit of a hub for all of this. Let's talk now about the Master Gardener Volunteer and Leadership Program. It's relatively new. It's hitting really great goals. Can you describe how the program came about and what it does? Okay. So again, um, I went to International Botanic Gardens Conference in the US and visited some of those gardens that were the... um, the instigator of our initial um, community greening program and just to see what they were doing. And one of the things they were doing was some urban gardener programs and that were more structured, intense courses that we weren't offering. And as a way to sort of um, empower and, and uplift uh, that the community and, and, you know, reward the volunteers in a sense by giving them like a qualification and bringing them together for, a, you know, a common sort of project so i came back and i piloted a, i got a small grant of ten thousand dollars and piloted a small program with three courses and then we did um we we applied for a bigger grant and got a really large amount enough to employ someone full-time to sort of really get that program going and deliver that in partnership with tafe new south wales and a number of other organizations that help us engage those community groups and and bring them along for those short it's a short six-day course it's very much co-designed and and delivered and developed in conjunction with community so each one can be slightly different many with similar sort of goals and objectives but some could be to work towards creating a, a food enterprise others could just be to start a community garden like down in eden and, and some of them were to, to bring together, say, three or four groups of community gardeners to, to network and connect and, and, um, you know, share, share knowledge and, and like experience. So, yeah, there's a real variety. Uh, and that they're currently being evaluated by Western Sydney University. So really looking forward to seeing what those reports are going to look, look like. We're doing pre and post wellbeing surveys and, and skill surveys and volunteering surveys. So um, the initial kind of results that we've had over the three years of the program since since we've added it into the suite of community greening programs that we do, along with youth community greening, we've had over 15% identify as First Nations, uh, 21% are culturally and linguistically diverse communities, 38% of them with a disability, uh, 40% are born from outside of Australia. And so we've had people um, achieve further training some have uh, gone on to employment and obviously a, a much increased uh, volunteering sort of um sense of purpose there as well yeah really really fantastic all about really developing skills and confidence and and connections to to go on to other things whether it be volunteering or further training and education that's right yeah oh and a school garden assistant program we did a couple in um schools where they had um schools as community centers so they've um, got the community centre on site at the school, and so we sort of trained we trained community members up alongside students and support unit students and teachers, and so gave them those sort of garden assistant and school assistant training. We obtained sort of the working with children check for all the participants, and um, and that was really great. And a couple of those volunteers went on to help us present some teacher training on site at that school. So um, it was really a, a great um, avenue and very successful element to the program and probably something we could do a lot more of as well. And what's the sort of indicative age group? You described the diversity of people who've participated, but what's what's sort of the brushstroke age range? It's really diverse. I mean, look, community greening as a whole, generally our, our um, demographic is sort of 55 
through to 80. That's the main group. Um, obviously, First Nations communities are mainly in the 55 to 65, uh, unfortunately, because many of them aren't physically able to in their older age group, uh, which is something we've learned. But also, the Master Garden has certainly brought in a younger cohort of people. So we are talking about people just out of school looking for more more support. But also, the course is very much delivered um, based on the community level and, and need. And we do often find that many of our participants have had sort of a traumatic educational experience in the past where they left school in year eight or year 10 um, just because they, you know, a bit like myself, I left in year 10 and didn't really fit into the school, uh, you know, structure. So, I, you know, kind of yeah. much prefer the outdoor learning environment and don't like to sort of sit in a class too long. And so, yeah, we very much do everything in a very visual way and, and try to create a positive educational experience for, for people that haven't necessarily had one of those before. So yeah. that's the, the demographic. It's people that have really not connected with education before. So it's about trying to entice them back into TAFE or further learning or, um, you know, so for many, it's just about giving them very much hands-on skills and growing food and and traditional food and things like that. So and and yeah, we've had some uh, fairly new arrivals to the country go through that that course as well. And and it's about sort of you know learning how to grow food in in Australia and and with you know they obviously quite good farmers and growers from from their original country, but you know, whether it was tropical or arid, it's quite different to, to Sydney and, and Western Sydney. So. so a great mix of sort of life, vocational and community enterprise type skills for people with different levels of literacy or educational backgrounds so that they can uh, journey journey from a place that works for them really, really effectively. I think um, recently two of your participants from the program from Orange recently received a, was it a major award from the Australian Institute of Horticulture? Can you tell us about that and what that award meant to those people? Yeah, so I, those guys weren't in our Master Gardener, but they were, they, were in, they were community greening participants, but still a fantastic story all in it, of itself. And I think they uh, residents from the Benjamin Short Grove Mission Australia property, which is a residential aged care facility for vulnerable uh, community who are either homeless or at risk of homelessness. Um, and so I think 80% of the residents there are First Nations, identify as First Nations people. And we basically started there from scratch. So that was just a building site and worked with the team of staff there and uh, residents as they moved in to design and and build a, a therapeutic garden space. And so it now features raised beds, sand therapy beds, a, a mate's shed, a cultural seating circle and traditional sort of um, Aboriginal garden space for, you know, for meetings and things and, and you know, cultural days. And it's it's transformed that space and, and those people's lives, you know, residents that live there. Many of them, you know, go there and, and that's the last and only place they will live. And um, so, and many of the, you know, it, it's some very sad stories as to how people end up there. But uh, basically, through COVID and the lockdown, those two participants, uh, Ray and Nina, their first trip out post-COVID lockdown was to come to the Ivy, one of the, um, you know, most exclusive um, penthouse um, conference spaces in Sydney, and uh, receive this Australian Institute of Horticulture award. For for uh, regional green space excellence, you know, for them to come and be able to hear about their project, see slides in a video in front of industry, um, uh, you know, expert, be able to make a, a, a speech and the Institute were fantastic in creating a, a trophy for 
Botanic Gardens team and additionally the Mission Australia team and residents. So they got to take their own trophy back with them, have a little speech, and, and they welcome them there. You know, it was just fantastic just to see and, and to hear them ha- have a, a speech and, and to say thank you for all the work that's been done. And I think it really highlighted the importance of community and people in, in what is an industry that's often focused on pretty fancy high-end level gardens and um, not to forget about that there are people out there that, that need help like those that we sort of seek to support and and empower. Mm. And across our suburbs, regions and towns and country areas, it's just just such a beautiful story, Phil. I just love it. Where often people don't get to or don't see, uh, you know, there's, you know, quite horrendous sort of things for people, you know, in terms of food security and and access to water and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, which which relates a bit to Wilcannia, in your um, presentation to the Urban Agriculture Forum, you spoke about the Wilcannia Enterprise Development Project. I know you and I have been out to Walgut together and we've spoken about um, Angonia and Brewarrina and some of those places where we've each done work over the years. But um, the Wilcannia Project sounds really amazing. Can you can you tell us about where that's at and where, where things are starting from and just what the community wants? Yeah, look, it's it's fantastic. And, and without, you know, trying to make it a shortish story, but um, we went out there in, I think it was June 2019 and went to a, a women's shelter and um, we, we, we installed one veggie pod there and um, and about 10 different services came down and, and said, we've got to do this here and we, we're really interested and we want to, we want to do this. And so we sort of came away from that thinking we've got to do more in Wilcannia. And so we sort of, you know, made investigations and, and thought, yeah, this could be um, possibly an add-on to the Master Gardener program. And so we've we sort of promoted that idea of doing a course to build a community of food growers out there. And so that's still currently underway. So we can't really kind of, you know, talk about any results happening yet. But Yeah, 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 yeah. But certainly, you know, the initial... Um, is just been mind blowing. You know, people have been very much supportive. There's been a huge amount of investment there with the Regional Enterprise Development Centre and a lot of CDP funding there. And so there's quite a few raised beds and planters, but just some of those skills like growing food in such an arid environment and um, converting some of those beds to wicking gardens and, and teaching propagation and the like. The very the community there, you know, on the first day, there was so many people that came to enrol and participate in the course. Um, we had to actually cr- move to two sites with the COVID restrictions. So, you know, I think when you look at, you know, the courses that have been delivered there most recently were construction. I think they had about eight participants. In hospitality, there was about 10 or 11. And we had about 17 or 18, I think, on that first day. And so, you know, it's very much a lot of an interest and desire to grow food and very much about the, there's very much motivation to create an enterprise in town to be able to provide food to elders without having to travel two hours to Broken Hill for fresh produce and, and additionally to be able to sell cultural foods and, and cultural ingredients to tourists that travel through there as it is on a, a major tourist route. So we've sort of contextualised the course to that and we're really hoping that the local TAFE uh, take them onto a, an entry-level enterprise development course going forward and, and that's that's the ideal uh, with our Master Gardener course that 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 the learning continues um, post the end of that course. And um, like all of our other projects, we then also want to continue to support them yeah. post that uh, initial course too. That's fantastic. So what sort of partners in the community are you working with or who'd be really important to that program going forward? Yeah, so out there, it's obviously the Land Council, the, the Ready Centre, Catholic Care in Wilcannia have been fantastic um, being promoting uh, the, the project. 
And we've also had support from the Royal Flying Doctor Service out there. And it was just by chance that we heard that they were delivering a, a program. You know, I think I saw it in some in LinkedIn. And I just cold called the guy running the program and said, you know, we got to do some stuff together. And so now we're hoping to do, they've been out a number of times with the team out there, but we're hoping to do more things in Menindi and other regional areas um, to support their work in schools and community. And, and likewise, you know, through us working together. So yeah. that should also be pretty awesome. As, of course, with TAFE out there too, and um, the local community have just been fantastic, I think. Their elders and residents there, just really keen and enthusiastic about growing food and, and, you know, having water back in their river and things like that. So, you know, it's really yeah. been a good time. Yeah. It's exciting and overdue. Um, so where to now for Master Gardeners? Where else? Where else? Some, you mentioned further some evaluation that's going on. Do you need further Do you need further funding? Yeah, look, we do. We've managed to get another 12 months before we've even finished the report. So that just shows you the initial responses to by government to what we're doing. That it that it, you know they can see the value in it. So um, yeah, we we certainly would need, like to have ongoing funding so we can incorporate it into our program as a you know a continuing thing. And I think even if we don't achieve a lot of funding, we'll still try to do one or two courses each year through our existing funding, or try and sort of you know apply for additional grants to to keep you know those odd courses because. We do like to kind of, you know, fully cater and provide lunch for, for participants. We do also like to give them a, a shirt and a hat so that they've, you know, got a bit of a uniform and a, a, a real sense of that community of gardeners. So it does cost a little bit. We could do it a little bit cheaper, but it's, um, it's you know, it would be much less numbers of people being trained if, if that were the case. So so many opportunities to hook up with com- other community organisations and councils and businesses who'd like to support that sort of program because it, it, it packs a punch. <laughs> it's fantastic. That's right. Yeah, and I've had, I've had inquiry from some councils looking to sort of fund individual courses in their region as well. So, you know, they're, they're happy to, to pay for us to deliver something like that. So that's that's. Um, very positive as well. Bill, thank you. We could, I think we could probably talk for hours about this. We could. <laughs> and I'd love to speak with you again in six months or so to hear more about, you know, what participants and graduates from the Master Gardeners program are doing in terms of, you know, as being volunteers, mentors and le- leaders where they where they live because it's obviously changing their lives. It's just um, really inspirational. Absolutely. But wrapping up, can I ask you, do you have any uh, further key messages or call-outs you'd like to share or take-homes from Urban Agriculture Month? I think, like Chris said, you know, invest in the people and, and you know, everything else will come come together. And I think without our community, they're the most important thing. And then secondly, the partners that we work with, whether they be industry, uh, government departments or NGOs, you know, we can't do what we do without the support of all those fabulous people out there. And um, and that's that's our master gardeners and volunteers. That's, you know, just just people really willing to make change in their community for, you know, the environment or um, for their health, for their well-being. And, and it's just, um, yeah, very, very powerful and, and something that should continue no matter what. Yeah, it's a fabulous ecosystem and all power to you, Phil. I love your work. No worries. Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Phil Pettit, who is the manager of the Royal Botanic Gardens Community Greening Program, a program that sees and grows really strong connections, community and wellbeing. If you'd like to learn more and get behind the program, head to the Community Greening and Youth Community Greening page on the Royal Botanic Gardens website, which is at www.rbgsid.newsouthwales.gov.au backslash learn backslash community slash greening. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, 
head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at Nourishing Matters or Foodswell Australia. As this is a new podcast, we'd really value your support. So please give us a rating or review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too. Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.